We're in the middle of a series on the book of Joshua. And between our last text and this one is the, the whole middle section of the book. And in the whole middle section of the book, there are these long, detailed lists of the allotment of the land and exactly where its boundaries are and how it's divided up between the various tribes. And um, we're going to skip that. We're going to skip ahead to the end of that process today um, and look at these cities of refuge, cities which Moses and the law had previously commanded to be set up in the land once Israel enters the land and conquers it. And so we'll make four points. They're there in the outline. Um, capital murder, which is really an introductory point. Manslaughter, due process, and atonement. Capital murder, manslaughter, due process, and atonement. So it's not immediately in view in the text, but we do need to say a few words about intentional willful killing, that is murder. And the punishment for this in the law, the law of Moses, was death. No exceptions, no compensation could be taken, no pity was to be shown. Interestingly, this penalty predates Moses' law. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9, where after the flood, God says, whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he made man. This is usually taken to mean that the reason, the rationale for the death penalty, is that the murderer, in assaulting another human being, is assaulting the very image of God. So murder is an attack on God's very likeness. And that means it's not only inhuman and unjust, it means it's sacrilegious. And thus whoever sheds the blood of God's image must have his own bloodshed. All this is true. I don't, I don't think, however, it's quite the point that Genesis 9 is trying to make. It's more likely that the point is, by man the murderer's blood shall be shed because the man who exacts the sentence is an image bearer of God. In other words, the, man, the reference to the image of God back in Genesis 9 does not refer to the slain man. It refers to the human calling to execute justice. Men are made in the image of God and thus called to a kingly task. Because we're made in the image of the king. Called to a judicial task. Because we're made in the image of the judge. This, by the way, is the foundations for civil order. And this means that man is required to discern wisely. To render just legal judgments. To be God's instrument of just judgment in the earth. Because mankind is made in God's image. And this is how the human race exercises dominion as the vice regents. God is the regent or the king. Men are the vice regents. The images, the creaturely replicas of the divine king. 
Men must uphold this sentence. It's part of their duty as image bearers of God. And this law, going all the way back to Genesis, is the primal law. The primitive law, the baseline law. Well before Moses' law for capital murder. It's the basic law of the Noahic covenant, and the Noahic covenant still abides, and all nations are under it. And it establishes God's right as judge and king. And the right and duty of men as administers of that justice under God. And it also establishes, we should make no mistake, the utter sanctity of human life. And the need for bloodshed to be met with bloodshed. If human beings don't have some intrinsic dignity and value, then you have no basis for any sorts of punishment, much less this one. Now, that's the basic law for capital murder. And, and the, there's a principle at work here. When you hear language like, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, you're hearing what's known as the lex talionis, which is the law of retaliation. Or put differently, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And the point of, of this law of retaliation is not necessarily mutilation. It, it's not necessarily that if someone cuts your finger off, you cut theirs off. It's clear that in many cases compensation was accepted for the damages. But the key point here, the key point is this, proportionate just response. The punishment must fit the crime. Now this all seems like common sense to us because we're Westerners. Um, but it's not common sense to, to much of the world. This is the basic principle of any just legal system. And the law here in Scripture is quite sophisticated. I'll make a couple points about this. So you have this basic law for capital murder. And then there's an expansion under Moses of the list of capital crimes. Right? It's not just murder. You can be put to death for other things. A dozen, 15, 18 things, depending on how you count. But it appears that very, very, very few people were ever executed by civil trial in Israel. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for this, but let me point out two wonderful safeguards in this law itself. And it shows here the nuance and the wisdom of God's ancient law. First, no one could be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Two, now get this, two eyewitnesses were required. Now that is a very, 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 very high bar. Criminals have ways of meeting very high bars, I know, because they're dumb. But you have to commit a capital offense in front of or witnessed by two people. It's, this is a tougher bar to meet than our current beyond a reasonable doubt. And if you add to this that malicious witnesses, 
those who falsely accuse someone of a crime could have the sentence that they sought to have executed on the other person executed on them. Then you have a very sophisticated system of protection. You have a very stringent law, but it's applied narrowly. If we could just get the second thing, we'd have all the tort reform we need in the United States. You bring a lawsuit frivolously against the other person, it's thrown out, then the damages you sought, you must pay. That's it. That clears out the American courts tomorrow. <laughs> so that's all by way of introduction. Here we want to go to the issue at hand, this is our second point. Cities of refuge uh, are to be set up. You see this in verse 3. Anyone who kills a person, accidentally or unintentionally, can flee to these cities and find protection from a uh, shadowy character known as the Avenger of Blood. And th so the crime that's in view in the text is what we would call today manslaughter. It is not premeditated murder. The law distinguishes between murder and manslaughter. And notice the law deals with motive and intent. Did he kill him accidentally? Did he kill him unintentionally? Intention is important in the law. Intention asks, what did you intend to do? Did you intend to kill this person? This, by the way, is why hate crime legislation is so insidious. Because it doesn't ask the what question. Did you intend to do this? Did you do this accidentally or not? It asks the why question. Why did you kill this man? Because you're a racist? Because you're a lunatic? Because you're a mat? What difference does it make? Right? So this is an instrument of political control. Intention is important, but the why question is not important. And look, notice in the text you have these words, accidentally or unintentionally. So what's in view here is something like negligence, lack of due caution, ignorance of the law. As verse 5 puts it, and this is very modern language, he killed him without malice aforethought. Without premeditation. So killing here is not what's meant in the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. Murder is in view there. Not, not just or a lawful war. Not manslaughter. Murder. This here is something different. Now, it's still a criminal action. It's a very serious action. You can tell from the nature of this text, it puts the manslayer in serious danger. And so, the question arises, why is this? Why is this? Well, it's because of the inviolable dignity of every human being as God's image. So that even accidentally killing one is a horrific thing. If human beings are cosmic debris, well, then do with them whatever you want. But if they're made in the image of God, you, can't, you have to take caution. Not only that, we're told in the law that bloodshed pollutes the land. Now, you can't lift this principle and apply it to modern-day America. It applies to Canaan because it's a special holy realm. There's heightened sanctions here in Canaan 
because it's the land of the holy God with his holy people. It's not a common realm. So the manslayer bears the guilt of this even accidental bloodshed. He flees to the city of refuge to find asylum, protection from this avenger of blood. But this is a sanctuary city. But it's a sanctuary city that actually protects against injustice rather than shielding one from justice. Which is what our sanctuary cities do. So, this avenger of blood. He's a person known more broadly in the Old Testament as a kinsman redeemer. This person is a near relative. Someone who could redeem a family member, buy them out of slavery if they had fallen into hard times or they had somehow come into bondage. Someone who could marry a widow and raise up offspring. It's a person who could generally perform functions for a family member in distress, a sort of guardian angel. Anyone who suffered injustice, this kinsman redeemer could step in to help. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth. But here, in this text, a very narrow function of this kinsman is in view. He can avenge the shed blood of a family member. So what this, this is Genesis 9. The law, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. This is that law institutionalized in Israel. There were avengers who had this task. Because he's bearing the image of God. And bearing the image of God has to do with justice. This has nothing to do, by the way, with blood feuds or personal vengeance or interwarring families. This person is given legal status. And he can avenge shed blood under only two conditions. One is if the person's a murderer. And two, and this is the one that's in view here, is if the person has committed manslaughter and you find them outside of a city of refuge. Thus, you might imagine the urgency of getting to a city of refuge if you are a manslayer. Shedding blood defiles the land. It violates the image of God. It places a person in danger. So the third point, then, is due process. Notice in the text how accessible, given ancient constraints, the, the judgment of God's just courts are. Israel is to designate all these cities, six of them, and by the way, we know from other texts, build roads connecting them. And they do that here in verses 7 and 8. And they put three of them on the east side of the Jordan, because two and a half tribes settled over there, and another three on the west. And the cities, if you look at a map, are located north center and south in the country on both sides of the Jordan River. It's essentially an, an appellate system of circuit courts, much like courts were run in America in the early days. Right? We have, our courts are called circuit courts because the justices in the 18th and 19th century used to get on horses and ride circuits to hear cases all over the region. And you have courts sort of like this set up. 
And no city here, no, no place of justice, is more than one day's journey from any place in the land. So the working assumption of the text is, look, it's not difficult to get to a sanctuary city. If you commit manslaughter, you can be there by nightfall. Justice is accessible. So, in verse 4, once the manslayer arrives at a city, what he does is he states his case to the elders at the city gate, which was the place of legal proceedings. And we know from other texts that if the court believes he's a murderer, they are to return him to his home city. They cannot shelter him. But in our text, the assumption is he's innocent. So they admit him to the city, they provide him a place to live. And if this avenger of blood comes, they can't surrender him. Because the text says he killed his neighbor accidentally. Without malice, a forethought. And so the avenger cannot issue a writ of habeas corpus, right? He cannot demand the body. And so the one guilty of manslaughter avoids facing the avenger, but at a very high price. Because while this is a city of asylum, make no mistake, this is also a prison. He can't leave. If he's found outside the city, he can be slain by the avenger. One last thing on this this due process. Verse 9 in the text makes it clear that this legal protection applies to foreigners. Resident aliens in Israel. That's because Israel were strangers. They themselves were aliens in Egypt. And the law, the Mosaic law, has built-in protections. Great compassion for aliens or strangers found in the land. You know, I'm amazed at how much discussion goes on about immigration in our country among Christian people where the starting theological assumption is not, well, our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were strangers in aliens in Israel, in Egypt, and God delivered them. That doesn't, it's, I'm not making any policy prescription here. I, I just note that when people talk about immigration... They talk about their fathers. My father was an immigrant. My grandfather was an immigrant. He was Irish. She was Italian. Right? And then they, and they talk that way. But when the Bible talks about it, it says you should remember that you and your fathers were aliens and strangers in Egypt. And so the law has these built-in protections. So the access to these courts is available even for the resident aliens in Israel. And what's, what this means is, even here, the significance of this, again, I'm making, I make no policy prescriptions here. The significance of this is that the provision for the Gentiles, for those born outside of Israel in the mercy of God, is built into the law from the beginning. Je, you know what Gentiles are? Immigrants into Israel. So the final point here is atonement. And here we get to, uh, to where the rubber meets the road, to what this has to do, if you will, with us. So verse 6 makes it clear that the fleeing person 
Once he stood trial before the assembly, you'll notice that. There's an, there's an assembly, there's a trial. He has to remain in the city until the death of the high priest. The high priest here represents the sacrificial system. And therefore, his death is the atonement needed to release the manslayer. At this point, he, he can return to his hometown free of guilt, not subject to the avenger. So that's the system. It is, I'm sure, to modern ears, a curious system, is it not? But there are a number of things we, we can learn from it that, that I do think touch us where we live. The first thing to see in this text is God's wisdom and his concern for justice. And the first principle, the first principle of human justice is that human life is sacred. Whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. And I don't think that even in the new covenant under Jesus, although there are good people who disagree here, that this can be retracted. Because this principle of justice, of blood for blood, is rooted in the, in the Noahic covenant. It's rooted in the order of creation. Jesus forgives those who murder him, that's true. God forgives repentant murderers. The church should show mercy to repentant murderers. But the state bears the sword and upholds the Noahic covenant and must still do so. And there's a lot of confusion about this when Christians talk because no distinction is made between what the responsibility of the state must be to preserve civilization and what the responsibility of individual people might be. Jesus, Remember Jesus says, I'm not a king, right? They wanted to make him king. He says, someone asked Jesus to divide up the inheritance between two brothers. He says, what, what am I? Do I look like a municipal court judge to you? That's my paraphrase of what Jesus says, <laughs> right? He says, I, I, I didn't come to do this. I have a task. Judges and the state have a task. There's no indication in the New Testament that the state has had the sword retracted from it. The, the second here, we should notice that this, this lex talionis, this eye for an eye, is the basis of any just legal system. I mean, that sounds simple enough. Perhaps you're thinking it's obvious. It's not obvious anymore. Right? Legal systems are not about corrections. I mean, is, is the phrase the Department of Corrections one of the dumbest things you can possibly... What are, are there third grade teachers in that building marking papers? What, what, the, what is this Department of Corrections? What is somebody... Is somebody back there putting gold stars? This is not what justice is about, corrections. It's not even about reform primarily. Right? Legal systems are first and foremost about justice. And when they replace justice with healing therapy, you end up with a civilization that has neither justice nor healing. And third, we see that this system, like any legal system, depends on men and women human beings in the image of God who can truly bear and reflect that image, meaning they can render just, wise, impartial judgments based on the evidence and the testimony. 
Man has a judicial task, a kingly task. And where that image of God is not reflected, the civilization suffers. We've eroded profoundly all three of these principles in our land. Blood for blood, you know, justice, human beings as the image of God. Right? The sanctity of human life is completely trampled upon, even celebrated, right? You might be outraged about this Cecil the Lion story. That's fine. The, the problem in our culture is the proportionality of outrage. Right? The Planned Parenthood story, these people are, are killing tens of thousands of unborn human beings, harvesting their organs, and that doesn't get anything like the outrage, the international elite outrage, over a lion being killed. This is a sign of a civilization that doesn't really understand any kind of proportionality about evil. We can take whether or not Tom Brady deflated a football and turn, turn it into a national six-month morality play. But we regularly tolerate the most inhuman barbarism. And so we've lost this ability to render just judgment. So we have a justice system. We have judges and courts, which while they are intact, barely, regularly hand down monstrous decisions. Right? They decree injustice in the guise of justice. Psalm 94 says, Can a corrupt throne be allied with thee, one that frames injustice by decree, one that enshrines wickedness? And we are now slowly losing men and women with the capacity as image bearers to render judicial sentences which accord with those of the divine lawgiver and king. Or even with the natural law that that God of nature gave. Or even with any kind of conception of reason. If you read Justice Kennedy's decision in the Obergefell case, the, the, the case which is handed down on gay marriage, it sounds like a Hallmark card full of sophomoric platitudes. It's one awful, horrific piece of reasoning after another. And so now, we have by judicial fiat essentially taking the serpent's position in the Garden of Eden. We deny the reality of creation because we've enshrined pure atheistic materialism on our views of origins. We deny the institution of marriage, the prototypical institution in Genesis 1 and 2, and we attack the fruitfulness and multiply with abortion on demand laws. So we have, in our judicial elites, essentially said, you know what, in this debate between God and Satan in the garden, Satan's right, we're on his side. These are the kinds of decisions. And then we have governors of the states, one of which I previously lived in, who is an evangelical, at least professes to be, and says, well, this decision is the law of the land. There's nothing we can do about it. What he should have said is what Augustine said. 
right, is that an unjust law is no law at all. This law has no binding force on the consciences of the people of this state, and it shall not be enforced. But we don't have men and women who are going to do that. We have people who are conditioned to roll over. Fourth, this is the good news. We need some good news here. Um, we have, in the death of the high priest, an atoning action. This is a picture of the work of Jesus. The fact that the man can't get out of the city till the high priest dies is a picture of Jesus' death. And that death saves us from all sin and from our own injustice, intentional or unintentional, because we are all sinners fleeing like Adam and Eve from the presence of God. And so I want to expand on this just a bit. We know from Exodus that the altar, the place where the animals were sacrificed, that was itself a sanctuary. People could come to the altar and cling to it and plead for sanctuary, plead for relief from the civil penalties they faced. You can see this in the law. And thus the altar of the cross, the place of Jesus' atonement, is the place of refuge and asylum for us from the wrath of God. God does not retract the demand for justice. But he provides a city, a place of asylum. And that means that Jesus and his body, the church, are the city of refuge. The place of sanctuary to which we can flee. And so this text, believe it or not, is a call to us to cling to the cross. Because when we cling to the cross, we've come to the city of God, who is our refuge and our strength. We embrace God, and embracing God, we embrace the church, the city. And we Gentiles, then, we're like the resident aliens in this text. And so this high priest's death atones for us. It atones for all, all who call upon the name of the Lord, who is our high tower. And so, Jesus then is our kinsman redeemer. Meaning, he's our kin because he takes our flesh. He takes our humanity. He steps into our peril. And by his action, an act really of unspeakable compassion, and of mighty power at the same time, Jesus delivers us from our forfeited rights from our deep bondage, from our thraldom to sin. He is your kinsman redeemer as well as his altar being your place of refuge. So, this Jesus is also the avenger of blood in the text. He's also the high priest in the text. He's the avenger and the high priest in one, and he exacts the penalty due us in his own dying. The avenger avenges himself as our substitute. That is the good news, the gospel in this passage. We are guilty sinners. We are in flight. We have an avenger who is hunting us down, and our avenger is going to avenge our blood on his own head. That is the love and the justice of God in Christ. 
He can be just. He never retracts the demand for justice. And freely the justifier, the one who pardons those who have faith in him. And this means not only are we set free from our guilt, like the manslayer in the text, we're free to return to our homeland. Meaning, we have a homeland which this land of Israel only dimly points to. Right? We have an inheritance which can't be forfeited. A land cleansed by Christ's blood from its defilement. Praise be to Christ who is our high priest. He is our blood avenger. He is our altar and he is our city of sanctuary forever. Amen.